Good morning. My name's Andrew, and thank you for your prayers uh, and your support for the ministry among uni uni students at the University of Queensland as well. I'm going to read the Bible for us uh, shortly, but I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine first, uh, a friend from my days as a student. In fact, I want to tell you about one specific conversation that we had one day. The lecture hadn't started, so my friend and I were chatting as days, and uh, as I think about probably most lectures as well. We would talk about the TV shows we were watching, because uh, we watched TV back then, not just streamed it. And we talked about family life, and sometimes we talked about God as well. But on that day, my friend said something which revealed something of the deep pain he was experiencing in the midst of life's difficulties. He turned to me and he said, God hates me. That's what it is. I was speechless. My friend came from a relatively poor family. He was a hard worker, but not everything went his way. Life was difficult. Nothing came easy. Alcoholic father died, and I think with that, so any interest he may have had in the God of the Bible. My friend's complaint that day reminded me that sometimes struggles and hardship in life can cause us to doubt God, to wonder whether God is willing or able to work for our good. Even Christians, I think, can struggle to see and to trust God goodness, to trust the, his power, even to trust in his presence when life is hard, whether it's the bullying at school, the slander of a vindictive co-worker, or simply the daily struggle of family. When life is hard, we can find it difficult to trust in the goodness and presence of God. This morning, we're going to hear from the Old Testament we're going to hear a message of comfort, uh, a word. It's a word which doesn't ignore our experience of being powerless, but through that, help trusted. The passage is Isaiah 36 and into 37. If you're following along in your Bibles there, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 36. The king of Judah at this time, his name is Hezekiah, and he receives a visit from the Assyrian field commander who has come to invite Hezekiah, uh, invite is a generous word, uh, to surrender. This is Isaiah 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? 
have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord, our God, Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? land without the Lord, the Lord himself destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shedna, and Joah said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master said to me, sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Me, me, you will eat fruit from your own vine and, and fig tree and your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, and of new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavai? Few countries have been able to save their lands from me. How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Him, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went to him with their clothes torn and told him what the fear had said. The opening verses of that chapter reveal to us a critical meeting. It's a critical meeting that happens at a critical location. The Assyrian field commander comes with his great army and he meets with Hezekiah's officials. They're meeting at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Now, for any city, their water supply is obviously a critical location, but this location is particularly significant because 30-odd years earlier... Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, 
was faced with a similar choice at this exact same location. On that occasion, King Ahaz was called by God through Isaiah to trust him, save him from uh, an alliance of uh, the northern kingdom of Samaria, Israel, and, and Syria. On that occasion, Ahaz opted not to trust God. He thought, I don't need to trust God. I know what's best. I've got my own ideas. Sadly, it was that choice which 30 has brought the people of Jerusalem to this critical moment and on the brink of capture. What are you basing this confidence, this trust of your... In whom are you trusting? See, this is a key issue, it, not just of this passage, but actually of the book of Isaiah as well, and we could... Bible as well. Who are you trusting? On whom do you place this trust of yours? The first thing I think this passage tells us is that we can abandoned us. You see, the natural thing to do when you find yourself in a situation like this, the thing to do when you're faced with a bully like this is to make sure a bigger bully support on your side. So you seek military reinforcements, don't you? That's how the world works. That's what Australia does. We have alliances with other countries because we're not big enough to fight for ourselves. Now, one of the things you need to remember that is that in the ancient world, it's not these sort of battles aren't fought just with armies and chariots. It's not just a matter of my army against your army, but it's actually theological. It's my God against your God. And that's where the Assyrian commander tries to sow the seeds of doubt in Hezekiah's mind. He's not just you know, mocking him to saying, look, you don't even have enough soldiers. Like, let, me, let me donate to you 2,000 horses, but you, know, you just don't even have enough soldiers to ride them. They don't Egypt. They're not going to help you either. It's not just in terms of their, their military uh, abilities that he's mocking them, but actually in terms of their trust in God. He sows these seeds of doubt. He says, your God isn't strong enough to save you. The Lord can't help. Perhaps even your God has abandoned you. Uh, So we might have, uh, on the first slide here, we've got a map of the region. There is a map there of Israel. It shows Jerusalem down in the south. Lachish is where the army is. It's not far. And the Assyrian army has come like a flood from the north. They have wiped out every city in their path. Of Israel, they have defeated already. And now he says... Don't you think your God is not going to save you? I think that's the struggle when things are difficult. We can be overwhelmed by the reality and the circumstance. 
Sometimes we become like Peter in Matthew 14 when he, he sees Jesus walking on water and as Peter himself begins to walk out to him, instead of trusting in Jesus, he gets distracted and, and in fact overwhelmed by the wind and the waves and he begins to sink. Like Peter, we get overwhelmed, don't we, by the wind and the waves of family dysfunction, of workplace politics, simply the physical health, our own health, which reminds us that our bodies don't last forever. These things are, are not in our imagination. These things are very real. If we think that God's plan and promise in life is simply to make us healthy, wealthy and wise, then these sort of difficulties in life are not just hurdles for us to overcome or things to quickly get over and to move on to something more enjoyable, but actually they can sow seeds of doubt that we think God is not just distant but actually against us. What a comfort it is to know that that is not what the Bible teaches. God's plan is not all about my comfort and my prosperity. That's not his highest goal in life. If God's plan is that, then I'm going to see those things as things to avoid, things to bypass. But God's plan is actually to transform us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus so that I might be found in him through faith. And so those difficulties, those struggles don't mean that God has abandoned me. In fact, they are God's means of transforming me to be like Christ so that I might trust in him alone. And that's why we can trust God when things are difficult because God is the only one who works for our good. You can see this in verse 13 onwards. But the temptation for us is always, isn't it, for God's blessing. And this is what the Assyrian commander, I think he's heard something of Israel's religion and the things that they trust. He taps into that. This is what he says in uh, verses 16 and 17. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make me, and see if this slide is a little clearer. It actually parallels God's own words in Deuteronomy 8. I've tried to color code them uh, so you can see the parallels there. Uh, This is God's promise to his people as he brought them out of Egypt. And he's saying, look, I actually have good for you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, God is the one who saved his people. He's the one who works for their good, and he's promised them a good land. But the temptation of Satan is always to take the promises of God and say, I can provide them for you. Listen to me. God can't be trusted. The good life is actually to be found somewhere else. After all, just look at all the other nations, as the Assyrian commander says in verses 18 to 20. Which of their... But the Lord is not like other gods, is he? He's not like the gods of Arpad or Babylon or Assyria. He's not some local deity, some shrine that you somehow... Heaven and earth of all nations. He's not just another god. You can't... Just one option in the buffet of world religions that you can pick and choose, mix and match. 
This God alone works for our good even when life is full of struggle and difficulty. And this is the journey which the book of Isaiah takes us on. As we move through the first half of the book and there is a great focus on the Assyrian threat and this invitation to trust God to save, as you move through into the second half of the book, uh, there is one who alone trusts God to save even in the face of suffering and giving of his life on behalf of others. This suffering is the key to to the people of God experiencing the full blessings that God had promised. 5 and 66, you'd swear that you're actually reading the end of Revelation because it's 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 the trajectory of the whole Bible to take us through the difficulties of life, through the the death and resurrection of Jesus, to this new creation where there is no more suffering, no more pain, where he is making all things new. But the temptation for Hezekiah, the temptation for us, is always to seek that the promises of God, the goodness and blessings, are to be found somewhere else rather than trusting God. Just as our Lord Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, so our temptation is always to bypass suffering, isn't it? Jesting that God's trying to withhold good things for us, and so we we ought to grasp hold of it ourselves. What a terrible lie. What do you do instead? What do you do during those times when you're feeling helpless? You pray, don't you? And this is the moment where throughout the story of Isaiah 36 and 37, King Hezekiah actually shines. This is his, this is his moment of glory. He does something which is absolutely right. He doesn't trust in his military prowess, his diplomatic discussions, or his uh, political wisdom. In chapter 37, verse 1, just after where we finish reading, he goes to the temple of the Lord and he prays. To God and he sends his representatives to Isaiah, the Lord's prophet, because he wants to hear a word from God. It's worth remembering that this threat from Assyria wasn't insignificant. I want to read you a quote, and I'm going to try to paraphrase some of it just because uh, KPC Kids isn't running this morning. But I need you to hear what Hezekiah was up against. This is how uh, one um, person has described it. Records of the Assyrians brag of live dismemberment, often leaving one hand attached so they could shake it before the person died. They made parades of heads requiring friends of the deceased to carry them on elevated poles. They boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with... The human skins were then displayed on city walls and on poles. They commissioned pictures of post-battle torches where piles of body parts were impaled. They pulled out tongues and other body parts. Let me just finish there. (laughs) 
Hezekiah isn't being told things aren't as bad as they might seem. The threat by the Assyrian army is very real. And humanly speaking, there is no reason whatsoever to think that that description there won't become his fate very shortly. Our life's difficulties may not be described in that vicious, um, vivid detail, but they are real, aren't they? The pain that we experience with um, family members or co-workers or next-door neighbours, those things are not insignificant. They are very real. Which is why the invitation to trust God comes as such a great comfort to us. That this is a very real situation in which God can way be trusted. And this is why Hezekiah's prayer is so encouraging for us. Because he recognises that he is utterly powerless. Utterly powerless against such an enemy. I wonder if one of the reasons why we struggle to pray sometimes is because we don't think that we are powerless. As long as we are still grasping hold of some skerrick of confidence in our own ability, that I still have some skill, some ability, some wisdom within myself to navigate this difficult relationship or difficult conversation, then it's not going to occur to me to pray to God. That is, unless I'm just trying to get God on board with my plan that I've already decided in my mind or my goals for life. But Hezekiah prays and not abandoned him. The word, trust me and I will save. God's word is so powerful. It's powerful because it's in contrast with these boastful words of the king of Assyria. Uh, Listen to how the king of Assyria is defeated. And this is the last uh, slide. This is how the Assyrian army was defeated. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people of Judah arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech, and um, Adramelech and Shariza, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. What did the people of Jerusalem and Judah do to contribute to their salvation? They did nothing. In fact, they were asleep. (laughs) They didn't actually realize what God was doing. They just kind of wake up the next morning and go, oh, my goodness, 185. They didn't. They didn't suggest to God a plan of attack. They didn't organize uh, any kind of ambush. They slept and just woke up the next day and look what God had done. What a glorious image of what it means to be a Christian. To become a Christian means 
not nothing in my hand I bring, but to completely trust God for everything. There is nothing that I have done. What a wonderful picture of what it means to become a Christian and to be a Christian, to live as a Christian, that each day I trust God to work out his purposes. He doesn't need me to help contribute. It's a wonderful picture of what it means to live as a Christian, to trust God totally. It's not about being stoic and thinking about these life's difficulties are you know, not as bad as they might seem, that they'll pass over at some point, but it's about trusting God, acknowledging that we are completely powerless in the face of my own sin and my struggles in life, but that his word is powerful, and that's because there is no one like God. He's not like the gods of the nations. This is the one true God who made the heavens and the earth and who alone, who works his purposes out. Later in the book of Isaiah, he says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. Now, that, you know, when you first read that, you think, oh, oh, that just means I don't understand what God's talking about. But actually in the context, it's God's means of salvation is actually through suffering. The suffering servant who dies on behalf of the people, none of us would have thought of that. Thought of that. But this is God's plan. This is how he works. And his plan is to work through these things to bring us to the destination, to bring us home at the end of the day, that new creation where there is no more pain, no more suffering. We love passages like Psalm 23 where we pray that the Lord will carry us through the valley of the shadow of death. This is a great passage. It's vivid. It's easy to follow. But it's a great passage because it puts its finger on this critical issue in whom are you trusting? It's a fabulous passage. It ties together the book of Isaiah. It ties together the whole book of the Bible. And I trust it ties together your life too. Let me pray, confess our powerlessness uh, as we trust in God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not like the gods of the nations, the idols that have mouths but can't speak, eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. Father, thank you that trust in you is not misplaced. We confess we don't always know what you are doing in our life or in our world, but we trust that you alone are God and that you're working things out according to your good purpose. We bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We We pray that for ourselves, that we would persevere during those times of difficulty and struggle. We also pray for those of your people around the world for whom descriptions like this are more real. Thank you, Lord, that you alone can be trusted, trusted to achieve your plan and purposes and to hear our prayers.
because we are powerless. Amen.